This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Deputy Director of the Americas Program and Director of the U.S.-Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Was how professional the Mexican but government. are we ready? Long-term I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Can cryptocurrency help to break totalitarian controls over societies? What is the role of cryptocurrency in humanitarian aid efforts, in remittances? What are the risks and vulnerabilities when it comes to cryptocurrency? It is a technology experiment, okay? About eight or nine years ago, it launched as an experiment in independent money, non-government money. But what we see right now is this huge public interest in something that, frankly, most people don't understand. We're going to be talking about all of these issues with a special focus on Venezuela. My name is Moises Randum, and filling in today for Richard Miles, the regular host of 35 West. I'm the associate director and associate fellow of the Americas program here at CSIS. And I'm here with the brilliant young Venezuela Alejandro Machado, he's a product designer. He has worked for technology startups like Spotify, the Zika company, and he's a founder of the Open Money Initiative, an organization that researches the creation of technology products to empower economic access around the world. Alejandro holds a, a bachelor's in computer science for Universidad Simón Bolívar, one of the best universities in Venezuela, by the way, and a master's in human-computer interaction from Carnegie Mellon University. Thank you so much, Alejandro. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you so much, Moses. Thanks for the kind words and for having me here. So we know what your CV says, but tell us a little bit more about you how did you get into this industry into cryptocurrency type of efforts? Just, you know, tell us a little bit about you and who you are and how you got here. Yeah, you know, this is a bit unexpected for me. I never really had the idea of getting into cryptocurrency. I, I know some people who got into it kind of earlier. Uh, and now that I'm in the space, I feel like I'm the newcomer. I'm just like, I'm, I'm just very new to all of this. I always wanted to work more in education and other uh, fields, uh, all, always related to technology because I've, I've been liking technology and computers since a very early age. But I've been more of a person who also likes to connect with people and to bridge the gap between people and technology rather than just uh, programming or just uh, doing very technical work. So it's uh, it's been a bit of an odd journey. But I think the, the thing that got me into cryptocurrency like really the most was uh, last year, I was uh, at this dinner with uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who is now CTO of Coinbase. And he has this way of framing the future, you know, and, and, and recommends books and, and talks about, you know, the big role that the network will play in the in a world where nation states need to compete with each other and where people are freer to move between states and so on. So it's, it's very interesting to see like where the future is going and that that's what got me into it and then after like a couple of months after that then the the government of venezuela announced the petro and i started writing about it like bashing it for for the technical disaster that it is right uh and uh i think that that kind of like led me into just working in free and open cryptocurrencies as an alternative to state-sponsored attempts at 
you know, co-opting this uh, movement that is supposed to be a movement for freedom and for for openness. That really uh, brings us into the the content here, right? And and I think it's important for our audience to kind of hear from you first. What what is cryptocurrency in the first place? How cryptocurrencies work? And how different is our independent cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin from other type of so-called cryptocurrencies like Petro, mm -hmm. right? You mentioned the state-sponsored Petro yeah. that the Venezuelan regime is trying to back. Um, so tell us a little bit about that background. Yeah, it's important to keep in mind, and for the people that don't have a technical background or are not following the space very closely, it can get challenging to determine the difference between something that is actually a cryptocurrency and something that is not. Because the you know paper holds everything, you can you can say whatever you want, and ultimately, uh, the Venezuelan government is known for their propaganda efforts, and and they they lie constantly. So whatever they say and whatever you know an uh, an entity that is not trustworthy says doesn't really carry a lot of weight sometimes. So cryptocurrencies are you can think of them as private privately issued money. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't if you don't like the definition of money because you know that these assets are not like fully proven that they actually meet the criteria that we usually think of when we think of money. That's a fair criticism. I think that some people have been calling them crypto assets for that regard. So you could definitely say that that Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and uh, well, Ether is the is the the token and Ethereum is the network. So these networks, uh, they they are you can think of them as networks that have a native token or a na native asset that you can trade between participants of the network. So like the internet is, is a network for disseminating and, and exchanging information, these are networks for disseminating and, and exchanging things that have scarcity, things that are that provide some value to some people. And uh, you know the the issue sometimes with, with these assets or like that the main objection for, for them to be called currencies is that they are very volatile. You like if, if you compare it the the value of Bitcoin to the value of the dollar, which is uh, more of a stable, you know, it has more of a history, it is, you know, money that is sponsored by a state and so on, then it it fluctuates a lot if you compare those two. But uh, some people would argue that one Bitcoin is always one Bitcoin, right? And 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 if you can have an economy based on Bitcoin or based on Ether or based on another kind of this privately issued money, then you could think of it as money and it doesn't need to play into the role of like, what what is the relationship between this money and government-sponsored money? Yeah, um, yeah. So some of the benefits that I've been hearing uh, which is true now about the nature of cryptocurrency is that they're censorship resistant, they're decentralized, and they're immutable, they're borderless. Mm -hmm. So that, that brings the question when it comes to a collapsed state like Venezuela, right? We have a regime that is trying to increase controls over the society, trying to tighten economic controls over people's account. They're trying to control the remittances flow. And we want to be, we want to hear from you on that respect. But, but in CSAs, we have about four or five key aspects that we identify that cryptocurrency may play a role um, on helping, empowering the Venezuelan pe uh, people. And these are the following, right? So we, we have, we know there are virtual humanitarian aid 
NGA corridors happening in Venezuela. There are people in Venezuela receiving cryptocurrency-based donations, and they're using those donations to distribute food and medicine. Yes. That's one concrete way. The other one is remittances. Venezuela is becoming a remittances hub. Yes. And there's and that's only going to increase as we see more people fleeing. So what's the role of cryptocurrency when it comes to remittances? Maybe reestablishing free market mechanisms that are not in existence in Venezuela right now. Because right. Yeah, that's very important. So, you know, we, we will talk about risk and vulnerabilities later. But walk us through a little bit of what, what are the benefits that you see of the use of cryptocurrency in Venezuela right now? So I think the most obvious use of this technology is to use it as a better form of money. Uh, there's people that, there's a lot of hype around the blockchain technology and what it can enable. And uh, I think right now what we're seeing is a lot of people want to use it for many things, for identity, for supply chain. And those use cases are as of today, unproven. That I would certainly like to see more innovation in other aspects of these technologies um, and like related technologies as well. But what's clear uh, from the 10 years of Bitcoin's history, which uh, Bitcoin just turned 10 years old, that the white paper was released on October 3rd, uh, 2008. So what's clear in the 10 years that have followed since the release of the white paper and the network being uh, established is that it's a network that has withstood the to this test of time. Uh, no state or no entity has been able to stop any any Bitcoin transaction, and that is a, a huge deal. It's a technology kind of like the internet that provides value to people who care about their transactions not being able to be stopped, right? And this is something that is interesting in the context of a, of a totalitarian or authoritarian state because the Venezuelan government has been able to stop people, regular people, from transacting with each other and from transacting with the outside world because they control the banks. Uh, they, they regulate the banks very, very tightly and they have total uh, financial surveillance over the banks. They tell you how much you can withdraw or how much you can move between accounts every day. And uh, for 15 years, we've had this situation where you can't trade your local currency for other currencies and they issue money irresponsibly and they print money at a rate that is absolutely insane and this is what's causing the huge hyperinflation that we're seeing right now that is also turning one year old now and uh living under hyperinflation is is basically being a slave of the state in a way because you do your money no longer works you're earning salary a salary in a worthless currency and you have no agency of, over what you can do so it's it's obvious that if if you have a, another form of money it can be the dollar it can be the euro it can be you know, any other national currency, or it can be privately issued money like Bitcoin or like other currencies, then as long as you can use that, as, as long as you can you can use it as, a, as, a, as an alternative to your money, then then that a, a different kind of economy can flourish. And you don't no longer have to be dependent on what the Venezuelan government uh, issuing uh, rate of, of currency is. And they, they no longer have power over that part of the economy. And that is something that that is a, an important check on the huge power of totalitarian states that we should be able to have. Fascinating. Um, for example, the CLAP program, the regime is using food as a as a weapon, right? And it's trying to control the Venezuelan society through food. Yeah. But if the Venezuelan people have a way to 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 buy food and to, to you know independent markets with 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 the money 
with cryptocurrency, for example. I think it, it would be a way to mitigate the controls that the regime is increasing having yes. over societies. But going back on the remittances issue, and I've been hearing a lot of numbers. Uh, I, unfortunately, there is not official da data of how much remittances are flowing into Venezuela right now. But I've been hearing this is about 150 to 200 million per month. Earlier, I, I heard I heard that it's about uh, 2.6 to 3 billion a year. And I think these numbers are only going to increase, as, as I mentioned. That yeah, migration is increasing. You know, 10% of the population of Venezuela has already left. It's like if the whole of Florida left the United States. It's, it's really big. Exactly. So, but we also seen movements from the Venezuelan regime to try to control the flow of remittances yes. in the last few months. I think they're trying to follow the Cuban model in, in a sense of trying to take a step a piece of those remittances. That's that's probable, yeah. So tell us a little bit of what's the role of cryptocurrency in this remittances space, and and if is is can can be can be be helpful for people fleeing and using it to send back money to their families. Is it cost efficient? Yeah. So I think let's take a step back from cryptocurrencies a little bit and say what what if you could send dollars to your family in Venezuela, right? That wouldn't that be helpful? I think it would because people are already setting some prices in dollars. The economy is already dollarizing because people are losing faith in the currency after one year of over 50% inflation every month. I mean, right now we're at the point where prices are doubling every 18 days or less. So the people have lost their faith entirely in, in the currency. So anything that works better, the Colombian peso, the dollar, Bitcoin, is an alternative to to the money system that they have. So if you could send dollars or, or pesos, you would do it. No, like it's 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 not even a question. The problem usually is that it's very difficult to get money into the country because if you're going to send it in cash, it's very unsafe. Right. Venezuela is a very dangerous country, so you need to do it carefully. And uh, there are. You know, cash is physical. It has a physical representation. It's uh, it's difficult to move around. You know, if you want to send a hundred dollars of, of of worth of money, which is not much here, but it's a lot of money in Venezuela, how do you actually make that physical transaction happen? It's it's difficult. So, what people do usually to send money to their families and loved ones is using a service like Western Union. If you use Western Union in Venezuela today, Western Union is regulated by the government there, the, the local branch, and the government takes a fifty six percent cut of what you send. So obviously, no one uses that as as an alternative. Because first, yeah, you, you're turning your like valuable dollars into a worthless currency that is going to depreciate very fast. And second, you're losing 56% in the process because the government just determined that they want to take that that piece, that huge piece of the of the pie, right? So cryptocurrencies, where they where they become interesting is they allow anyone to have a sort of account of, or or bank account, right? Right. Without even having an, an account, because that's that's how they work. They work using, uh, you know, software instead of uh, banking services that are institutional, right? Uh, so the idea is that you can take money that is, you know, dollars here in the U.S. or pesos in in uh, Colombia, soles in Peru, and then you turn that into cryptocurrency and you could send that to your family in Venezuela. And then as long as the people in Venezuela can do something with that money, they could either trade it for bolivars or they could have it accepted at their local store, then it's it's a tool for them to hold the money in a more stable form and to also transact with that kind of money 
that is open and that is freely exchangeable. And you could also send some money back to, to the economy outside. And this could enable actually Venezuelans to start providing goods and services for the outside world and, and to normalize an economy and, and to grow an economy potentially. So it's a v- huge tool for liberalization yeah. of, of the economy and, and for freedom. Very interesting. In fact, Venezuela is becoming uh, a hub, right, for the cryptocurrency market. Uh, I think is the third, the fourth country that trade the most local bitcoins it might be yeah um so there's I, there's a volume of a million dollars a day in local bitcoins which is the the main exchange that people are using there so yeah. if i wanted to to transform my dollars if i had an emergency right and i need to send money back to venezuela right what i would do is to buy bitcoin here in the u.s or or elsewhere where where, where i have accounts and and it's where it's easy for me to buy bitcoin and uh, and send it to a local Bitcoin trader in Venezuela, and he will immediately tr- wire me the money in Venezuela. And that that I mean, I I don't need to know someone that does the trade for me. This is like a service that's being provided by local Bitcoins. And and the 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 reason why I can't why I can't do this uh, normally, you know, like if I wanted to send money to Europe, it's trivial. Like I can use TransferWise, or I could just like wire money through my banks, and I know that the money is going to arrive at a reasonable rate, and it's going to arrive at a reasonable amount of time, and my family can pick it up in Europe, for example. But in Venezuela, this doesn't happen because the interbanking system. The first, they they're not taking transactions that are coming from the U.S., and second, if they were it would be at the government-decided rate. So again, we have the 56% or or 60% difference between what the government considers that is the official rate because they want to control the narrative that the Bolivar is valuable. But of course, reality smacks them in the face all the time and and says, you know, like, actually, the Bolivar is not actually that valuable because you keep printing tons of it. So how how can it remain valuable? The IMF is saying that the hyperinflation balance is going to be 10 million in 2019. Mm. But if you talk to other economies, they're saying the hyperinflation rate is going to just blow up. I yeah. mean, it's going to be 40, 50 million. Yeah, I mean, and what, what is, what is it, it's very difficult to know what those numbers mean. Like, I mean, yeah. what, what is a million percent inflation? Right. You have to like actually live through it to understand what that means. What, what it means is that as soon as you get deposited your salary, you rush to the store and buy goods to be able to hold some of that value because tomorrow you're gonna not going to have the same amount of money. You're going to be able to buy less things. Exactly. So it's uh, if you if you can either go rush to the store or rush and buy some other kind of money to to trade it freely and and Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in particular have this benefit that it's it's very it's relatively straightforward to trade Bolivars for Bitcoin because there's a very liquid market right and also that it's it's censorship resistant when when you have Bitcoin when you have money in Bitcoin form the government or nobody else can stop you from using it just the way you want to use it. If you want to use it to buy eggs, if you want to use it to send to your family back yeah. home or 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 back or vice versa, you can use it for whatever you want. And no one can stop a transaction. And that brings us to the other issue here, and I want to make sure that we cover it, which is the risk and vulnerability of the use of cryptocurrency in Venezuela, not at the local individual level, but at the national government level, right? Because the main U.S. policy towards Venezuela right now is is a sanction regime. And, and the Venezuelan government is being sanctioned specifically individually, right? Yeah, some, some like 60-something individuals who are involved in the drug trade are sanctioned and uh, some... 
some things are not allowed, like lending more money to PDVSA. The state oil company is also not allowed because they, they they've been it's been proven that they launder money through PDVSA and, exactly. and they use PDVSA as a way to earn revenue and then shortchange the the, yes. the people. So, so two questions on that. Yeah, one is cryptocurrency can be can cryptocurrency be used to to avoid sanctions, and two. What is the role of cryptocurrency in money laundering, for example? Venezuela is one of the most corrupted countries in the world. Mm -hmm. So is money laundering an issue when it comes to cryptocurrency? So the sanctions question, I would think that like at the moment, the crypto market is so small and it's such a small proportion of the transactions, big transactions or state level transactions. It's actually very difficult to get around sanctions at the state level. If you're, ta if you're talking about billions of dollars and it also ties into the, the money laundering question. If, if you're operating mm -hmm. this huge amounts of money, how do you think you're going to move that money into something that the majority of the world takes like the US dollar and actually be able to import goods and stuff with it? Because to be honest, like uh, cryptocurrency has a lot of potential, but not a lot of people take it today. And especially if you're a, a state and you want to buy food and you want to buy, uh, you know, more uh, different kinds of oil to mix with the oil that Venezuela needs to produce gas and so on, you you can't pay your providers in cryptocurrency. You need dollars, and and for getting dollars, you need to enter the U.S. financial system or you know some related systems that if you're proven to be laundering money or to, to trying to be averting sanctions, you'll you'll be caught. Because at that level of millions and billions of dollars, there's no way you can move money without a state noticing, and and the U.S. has a is is watching the the transactions very closely, and 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 people and and institutions are very wary of transacting or, or trying to or, or anything that might violate sanctions or that might might constitute money laundering. So it's very difficult to imagine that they'll be able, like the government as a whole or, or, or in part, will be able to to skirt sanctions in this way. Um, rather, I think it, it's mostly individuals and, and the individual citizens of Venezuela who will, who will benefit from, from the use of this technology because it, it really operates at a, at a much uh, smaller level. It's, it's, I think it's worth it to think what can happen if the crypto market grows and it becomes increasingly easier to conduct transactions at a higher uh, level and move millions of dollars around and actually be able to buy goods and services. Because right. right now you can move, it's true, you can move millions and billions with Bitcoin from one address to another. The problem is cashing that out into something that is useful. But as as it becomes easier to buy physical goods and services and a state could do it, I think it's it, there's an interesting question of, okay, what do we do to ensure that, or, or to just like not not foster at least the the criminal activity in these networks. Yeah. But I think it's it's kind of the same question as as in cash. I mean, I think cash has a reason to exist in in society. It gives you privacy. It is a check on the power of the state to exert financial surveillance and we have seen like in places like China for example what happens when the state can know everything about your bank account and and about your financial history. It's it's terrifying. It's a Orwellian state, right? I think Money, you, you could argue, oh, so cash shouldn't exist because criminals use it. Yeah, but it, it, it's a tool, right? And criminals also use hats and glasses to cover their faces, and they also use computers and the internet. So we, there's, it's not a reason why we should ban them. It's a reason that yes, we should, we should be watchful and and we should prosecute crime and and avoid crime. But 
I think it's no longer going to be about tracking where the money goes and and, and trying to exert full financial surveillance, but it's about focusing on the criminal uses and and how we can police those criminal uses rather than controlling the money flows, which is, I think, going to become very, very difficult. In, in the coming years. And that's what I, I mean, that's what the regime tried to do when they launched this, this thing called Petro, right? I mean, has, today you can't really buy it, you can't really sell it. It's, 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 it's far from being a cryptocurrency based on our discussion. Right. So just, you know, what is Petro? Is, what, what is this thing called Petro? Is this a real thing? And, and tell us what you think about Petro. Right, so the Petro is, an idea that the government had. They wanted to raise some money and potentially avoid sanctions. I think that was their intention, uh, but mostly raise money because they were growing desperate that their oil revenue is, is declining because they they are running the industry to the ground with engineers, like the, the brain drain because people don't want to work for a communist state. And, you know, it's just generally they're doing really bad in finance. And they're making up for that in terms of like coke uh, market now. They are producing and, and, and sending drugs to to outside. Yeah. And uh, they're they're in the business of kidnapping. They're like financing terrorists in, in the ELN in in the country. So they they have all these like scammy and fraudulent activity around it. And the this like ICO, which is what it's called, it's it stands for initial coin offering. And it's uh, the way that you, ha- you, you can have to issue your own coin or your own token, a cryptographic token, and then get paid for it because you, you, you claim that this is going to have a return on investment on, for, for investors, right? And um, here in the US, there have been cases of people that have released uh, ICOs because they have a project and, uh, you know, there's an expectation of gain and, you know, there's all this debate about whether these things should be securities or should they not. And this this is interesting debate going on. But in the case of Venezuela, what they wanted to do is they they wanted to release this new currency and they, they wanted to, to make it valuable and, and, and to make people believe, the, the international market, to believe that this is trustworthy. But of course, we're talking about a government that ran the country to the ground, that is responsible for hyperinflation, that has no credibility. So there, there was no way that they could actually raise a lot of money with it. And in fact, they said that they had <laughs> raised so much money, but it's... They did not. <laughs> no, it's, it's, very, it's very much unproven. They, if they really wanted to show their, their cards and say, oh, look, we, we right. did it, they would. But it's obvious that they haven't. So at most, I think they've maybe raised a couple million from like really... Random. Im- yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I don't think it's it's gone way more than that. And uh, I mean, for a state, that's nothing. So like, I, yeah. I, I don't think you can reasonably claim that the Petro is a tool that has been used for, for, for meaningful authoritarian, like uh, an advance of the authoritarian agenda. I think it was an idea that they tried, but I, I think it failed. And I think ultimately blockchain technologies favor more the individual and they're not ideal for states that want to run an oppressive uh, regime. So what they're doing now with the Petro is they actually they realize that a blockchain is a really bad idea because governments or no single party can control a blockchain. <laughs> uh, and uh, obviously they want to control the economy. Their whole deal is to centrally plan everything. And they are, they also do a really bad job at it, but that's, that's what they want to do. So they realize that and I think they want to pivot the Petro into something that uh, is a, more like a digital fiat it's issued by the government also, but it has some level of credibility, maybe because the Cuban government or the, the, there's some be, the, there might be some Cuban advisors behind it. And so maybe they want to try something to, to pull off something like the Cuban convertible peso that is 
actually stable to the dollar because the Cubans exert good fiscal responsibility with this currency. And then they'll leave the shit currency, which is the Bolivar, to for, for the people in, of Venezuela who basically will become more and more like slaves that get paid in this fictitious currency that is is very it withers right very quickly so pedro will be uh, pedro will, will be the the currency accessible only to foreigners because that's that's how the cuban model works right the cuban peso uh, uh the foreigners are all the only ones who have access to the to the colombian to the cuban um peso but the regime of Cuba tries to pay their citizens not through the Cuban peso, but to the right to the other local. Yeah, it's it's similar. I think well in Cuba you do see a lot of Cubans holding the convertible peso because they they get around it because it's it's right. a survival skill, right? If you don't have convertible peso, you actually don't have enough to eat. You you will die without it. So people like smuggle it. They you know get tips from tourists in it, and and it helps also that Cuba has a tourism industry that is significant. Venezuela doesn't have that, so I I would think that they yeah the government would try to still control and to keep the value of this like new currency, uh, which do- honestly doesn't deserve to be called a cryptocurrency because it doesn't it have it doesn't have any of the features that a cryptocurrency does. Um, the the government will try to control that uh, the the issuance and and to tell investors but would be people it would be investors of the country that this is a currency that has value and that you know is is more credible than the bolivar let's see if they actually pull that off because it you know they might just run run into the ground like they did with the bolivar i think it's likely that it'll, that'll happen because they they obviously don't know how to run a central bank properly independently without the whims of the dictator right this has been a very fascinating conversation. Thank you, Alejandro. But I don't want to finish before asking you this question. It's more about a policy perspective question. I want to get your take because, you know, many um, democratic countries like the U.S., Canada, the European Union, the Lima Group, there are various countries trying to help Venezuela right now, trying to empower the Venezuelan people, limiting their suffering, but at the same time increasing pressure on the Venezuelan regime. So, uh, it, it, so the question is, is, is incentivizing the use of cryptocurrency in Venezuela as a policy tool makes sense? Is this something that governments, like the U.S. government specifically, something that they should be look at. And at the same time, it, it will the incentivizing the use of cryptocurrency undermines the US dollar in the mm. war? Is this something that, that the US should be worried about it or any other country worry about it? So that's a very interesting take. Uh, I think that in the same way that the US is looking to foster democracy and Western values in other countries, which, you know, we we saw a lot more of that in the 70s and the 80s with mixed consequences, of course. But I I do think that the U.S. shouldn't abdicate the responsibility of at least advocating for their values, right? Like of freedom, of how important it is to have freedom and, and to have democracy in places. And... In, in a way, it's like fostering the development of the Internet in Cuba and in North Korea. These are tools that, if given to the people, they foster democracy, they foster decentralization of power, and they foster you know the, the demise of dictators and people who oppress their people. So something very similar happens with cryptocurrency here. I think once governments realize the power, it is decentralizing function. It is a 
a way for governments to delegate the authority of issuing money and and handling money it's like forcing central bank independence in a way you know right because like in venezuela the the main problem that we've had one of the main problems is that there is no independence like the maduro can just like print money whenever he wants right. so the the u.s is lucky to have an independent fed or and a stable fed and, and currency, a stable currency yeah. and it is the global like the the world's reserve currency and it's working right now it in works, a way that it works yeah. very, very well so so why not try to export that idea to to the rest of the world that there should be some independence between money and the monetary issuance and a government which may have bad intentions i think it's it's a question worth pondering and i think uh there's also uh, cryptocurrencies and and tokens that have the value they they are pegged to the value of the US dollar through various means there are some of them that are pegged through having reserves in a US bank and those reserves are audited so you know you can always tell okay these if you trust the US financial and court system you can say okay these these guys actually have the money uh, in the bank so these tokens are they, they it makes sense that they are circulating uh and the other way is through algorithms there's one called dai from makerdao that's also very interesting So there are ways that we can export in a way or like capture the value of a US dollar and to give access to the US dollar in a way to in a digital form to other societies and, and other countries that might want it and or might need it because their own currencies are really bad. So either that or either promoting the access of uh, cryptocurrencies that are privately issued like Bitcoin or like Ether or others. I think that would be a very sound and 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 very coherent policy for governments that that are fighting for freedom. And this is something that some work that uh, incidentally the Human Rights Foundation is advancing and right. uh, uh, Alex Gladstein, uh, the head of strategy from the Human Rights Foundation has been pushing for this yeah. and I think they they've been pioneers. They they've been very quick to realize what a wonderful tool cryptocurrencies provide for fighting authoritarianism. Especially when Venezuela is running out of options, right? We we're trying to increase pressure through sanctions, yeah. through diplomatic efforts, but maybe technology can also be used in that same policy focus, trying to empower the people, limit their suffering, but at the same time increasing pressure on the right. regime, taking control away from them. I think it's something that we all need to think more, and that's why this conversation needs to be continued. You have an open invitation, Alejandro, to be back with us in CSIS. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Moisés. We're delighted to have you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode, and make sure to subscribe to 35 West on iTunes and SoundCloud.